Hello and welcome to this installment of AZ Law. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, and I'm a Phoenix attorney. We explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this new program. AZ Law came about to provide Arizona legal news for Sun Sounds of Arizona, the nonprofit reading service for people with disabilities which make it difficult for them to read or hold printed material. It is broadcast the third Saturday of each month at 11 a.m., and other installments are available at Sun Sounds On Demand. Our Arizona'sLaw.org website is independent of Sun Sounds, but its prime focus is to support it. It's a service of the Rio Salado Community College, by the way, along with KJAZ and KBAQ radio stations. Our website has links to those stations and information on how you can become a member of them. We urge you to do so now at Arizona'sLaw.org. AZ Law, of course, is now available for download at that website, as well as on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play Music and Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, wherever you find your podcasts, you can find AZ Law. And with that, let's go ahead and get to the news. Our first article is from our own website and our own reporting, ArizonasLaw.org. And in this story, we were the first ones to report on this nationally. It got some national attention afterwards as well, soon soon thereafter. But we were fortunately the first ones to report on this. U.S. Supreme Court rejects Arizona's request to sue opioid manufacturers' family to retrieve looted billions. Here's the article. In an order this morning, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that Arizona cannot proceed with an unusual trial case in the nation's highest court to try to retrieve $4 billion from the Sackler family to apply to the lawsuits against Purdue Pharma, one of the largest opioid manufacturers. Attorney General Mark Burnovich expressed his disappointment with the court's order, and he indicated that he would, quote, continue to fight for Arizona's interests in the Purdue bankruptcy proceedings. End of that quote. Arizona's surprising approach to ask the Supreme Court to take original jurisdiction in order to set aside alleged fraudulent transfers of wealth from Purdue Pharma to the Sacklers has run into the bankruptcy case subsequently filed by Purdue. Arizona answered Purdue by telling the Supreme Court last month that it would be unconstitutional for the bankruptcy code's automatic stay provisions to prevent the highest court from accepting original jurisdiction to handle a case like this. With a one-sentence order this morning, the Supreme Court denied Arizona's request. This is one of two cases where Arizona has been asking the Supreme Court to take original jurisdiction of a case, rather than the Supreme Court's normal task of handling appeals from lower courts. The other is the case against California regarding taxes imposed on Arizona-based LLCs. The justices have asked the United States Solicitor General to express his opinion on whether the court should hear the case. And here is Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich's full reaction to today's order. Due to the magnitude of the opioid crisis across our country, we are disappointed that we cannot bring our claims directly in the Supreme Court. Nevertheless, we respect the court's decision and thank those states that supported Arizona's filing with an amicus brief. Today's ruling will not end our efforts to hold Purdue and the Sacklers accountable for their role in the opioid crisis. We will continue to fight for Arizona's interests in the Purdue bankruptcy proceedings. And that was an article on ArizonasLaw.org. U.S. Supreme Court rejects Arizona's request to sue opioid manufacturers' family to retrieve looted billions. 
And here's another article from our website, ArizonasLaw.org. That was the first uh, to report on this case as well. Here's the headline, Arizona Supreme Court rules in favor of Payson Mayor Tom Morrissey. No recall election. The Arizona Supreme Court has decided that Payson Mayor and former chairman of the Arizona Republican Party, Tom Morrissey, will not face a recall election on March 10th. The justices unanimously agreed with the trial court that the town clerk inappropriately used a 2002 election to calculate the number of petition signatures needed, rather than the election last year that elected Morrissey. The surprise Friday night ruling was not announced by the court, although a ruling was expected by this coming Tuesday on the expedited appeal. As is typical with such election cases, a written opinion will follow in due course. The Arizona Constitution requires the number of necessary petition signatures to successfully place a recall election on the ballot that they be calculated as a percentage of votes cast in the last preceding general election. That's in quotes. Payson, like many other towns and cities, uses a two-part nonpartisan election. Payson calls the first election a primary, but if a candidate gets a majority of the votes cast, then that person is elected as the mayor without the second general election. With those terms in mind, the Payson town clerk, after consulting with legal counsel, decided that because 2002 was the last time that the town had had a second general election, that that would be the basis for determining the recall minimum, the number of signatures. Payson has grown considerably in the past 17 years, and more votes had been cast in the 2018 primary election, which elected Morrissey. Chief Justice Robert Brutnell noted briefly, I should, we should note that Chief Justice Robert Brutnell noted briefly that the court was unanimous and that Article 8, Part 1, Section 1 of the Arizona Constitution requires the number of signatures needed to trigger a mayoral recall election must be calculated based on the 2018 election. End of the quote. In effect, the determination means that the term general election means the contest where the mayor is actually determined. And that was an article, Arizona Supreme Court rules in favor of Payson Mayor Tom Morrissey, and there will be no recall election next March. And that was from Arizona'sLaw.org. Well, our next article is from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services, and the headline it reads, Court Erred in Declining Name Change for Gender Transition. This was reported on December 4th. What you want to call yourself legally is no one's business but your own, the State Court of Appeals ruled last Tuesday. In a precedent-setting decision, the three-judge panel overturned a ruling by Yuma County Superior Court Judge Lawrence Kenworthy that denied a bid by Valeria Cortez to change his name, and without even giving him a hearing. In his order, Kenworthy dismissed the application for quote-unquote failure to show good cause. But appellate judge David Weinswig said there was no legal basis for Kenworthy, a Democrat, to reach that conclusion. He said nothing in Arizona law requires someone seeking a legal name change to provide good cause, or for that matter, any cause at all. Attorney Abigail Jensen of the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance said the ruling is a significant victory, and not just for those who are going through gender reassignment. She said it sends a message to judges that they don't get to second-guess the names that people choose for themselves. 
So if someone wants to use a name that other people might think is frivolous, that is not grounds to deny the name change, Jensen said. And that is pretty much what the appellate court ruled. According to court records, Cortez filed the paperwork earlier this year to change his name legally to Sebastian Tomas Valentine. That form requires an applicant to swear that the name change was solely for his benefit and his best interests. It also requires those going through the process to say that they understand the name change does not provide a release from legal obligations, that they don't seek the name change to commit any crime, including forgery and theft, that they had never been convicted of a felony, and that they faced no pending criminal charges. The form also asks applicants to explain the reason for the request. I'm transitioned and I want my documents to match my identity, Cortez responded. Kenworthy rejected the petition six days later. Weinswig, an appointee of Governor Doug Ducey, said that was not within Kenworthy's power. He said the name change statute lists the criteria that the court shall consider in whether to grant the name change. That, Weinswig said, goes to the questions in the application. Nowhere in the law is there a mandate for an applicant to provide a reason, even if there is a space for that on the form. The statute has no good cause requirement, Weinswig wrote, and he said there was nothing else that gave Kenworthy any reason to reject the request. The application raised no concern that Cortez wanted to change his name for any fraudulent or criminal purposes, the appellate judge wrote. Weinswig also made a special note to say that there is nothing different or special about this case. We reject any argument that the court properly denied Cortez's application based on his gender transition rationale, he said. At bottom, whether framed as a question of good cause or best interest, the statute does not permit the superior court to deny a person's name change request only because the person wants the new name to reflect a gender transition. That's really important for trans people, Jensen said. Many judges don't think people should change their names if they change gender, that somehow it's deceptive. Jensen said that legally speaking, it actually is not necessary for someone to get a court order to change a name. She said that can be done under common law by someone simply starting to refer to himself or herself by the new name. Still, Jensen said, a court order can prove helpful. It is difficult to convince banks and credit card companies, Social Security, to change your name based on this common law usage, she explained. So if it's important that you be able to get everything to match at the same time, then a court order will give you that. Kenworthy declined to comment on Tuesday's ruling. And that article was from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. Court erred in declining name change for gender transition. Our next article is a commentary from the Arizona Republic. Sheriff Paul Penzone is not Joe Arpaio. Why can't a federal judge tell the difference? This opinion column is from Robert Robb of the Arizona Republic. It was published last week. The continued micromanagement of the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office by Federal District Court Judge G. Murray Snow cannot be reconciled with the principles of representative government or the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, rightly understood. According to reporting of a recent court hearing, Snow vowed to censor the professional opinion of a statistician who conducted a traffic stop report, and what activists can say to Sheriff Paul Penzone in a public meeting. 
He also renewed the assertion that he can dictate with whom Penzone, an elected official, meets with, for how long, in what form, and require the sheriff to field questions. The conduct of the sheriff's office is before Snow not because of anything Penzone has done, but because of the actions of his predecessor, Joe Arpaio. Arpaio ordered deputies to flood Latino neighborhoods and pull over drivers for every conceivable infraction. It was a pretext to make inquiries about legal status in search of illegal immigrants. This was not something Arpaio sought to hide or obfuscate. He sent out press releases bragging about the number of illegal immigrants his dragnets yielded. Snow properly found that this was an egregiously illegal act of racial profiling. Nothing even remotely similar is occurring under Penzone, who defeated Arpaio for the post in 2016. But rather than narrowly tailoring a remedy to prevent the invidious dragnets, Snow effectively took over the management of the department, ordering a top-to-bottom reform of the entire personnel system, from deployments and training to performance reviews and discipline as well as detailed record-keeping of traffic stops, among other things. In essence, Snow appointed himself sheriff and named the American Civil Liberties Union, which brought the case against Arpaio, as his chief deputy. The voters effectuated a far more effective remedy than what Snow had fashioned and imposed when they ousted Arpaio from office. That should have occasioned a return to representative government, with Penzone free to do what the voters chose him to do, manage and lead the sheriff's office. But Snow continues to play sheriff and appears to see no difference between Penzone and Arpaio. The statistician Snow vowed to censor reportedly said that while the most recent traffic stop report showed some racial disparities, it did not show evidence of racial bias. Snow called that a flat misstatement. In reality, it is a reasonable conclusion from the data. The average length of a traffic stop was 19.4 minutes. The average for Latino drivers was 3.65 minutes longer. But some traffic stops, such as for impaired driving or where there are language barriers, naturally take longer than others. Comparing like stops to like stops, the difference shrank to less than a minute. As the report put it, analysis also suggests that the indicators for extended stop reasons may explain the differences in stop lengths better than the perceived race of the driver. Latinos and blacks were more likely to be arrested during a traffic stop than whites, but that is a rare occurrence for all races. Only 6% of traffic stops involve an arrest. Minorities were one percentage point more likely to be so. This is not evidence of an agency engaged in racial profiling a la Arpaio. Professionals engaged in collecting and analyzing the data should be free to say so. The judge can reach another conclusion, but attempting to suppress competing interpretations is an abuse of his authority. As part of the remedy, while Arpaio was sheriff, Snow ordered that the department hold periodic community meetings. This was also an abuse of authority. A judge does not have the constitutional writ to dictate with whom an elected official meets and in what circumstances. A judge can enjoin and remedy discriminatory conduct, but the relationship between an elected official and constituents is none of a judge's business. 
Snow was upset that Penzone ducked out of the last community meeting without taking questions. But these meetings will inevitably be captured by activists as a stage for political theater. If Snow did not understand that when he ordered them, he was inexcusably naive. Snow said that he would make sure that attendees would not use the meetings to beat up on the sheriff politically. And how in the world does Snow purport to do that? If some activist gets too much into Penzone's grill, is Snow going to hold him in contempt? In the real world, the content of such meetings is not subject to judicial restraining orders. Snow's micromanaging of the sheriff's office has cost taxpayers tens of millions of dollars more than was necessary to put a stop to Arpaio's egregious racial profiling. Arpaio is gone. It is time to return the management and leadership of the sheriff's office to representative government. And that was an opinion column from Robert Robb in the Arizona Republic on December 4th. Sheriff Paul Penzone is not Joe Arpaio. Why can't a federal judge tell the difference? An interesting column. Our next article, brief article, is from ArizonasLaw.org, and I wrote this. GOP senators push Tucson judges in today's confirmation hearing, and you can read their questionnaires at the website. But we'll just uh, go over the article, the summary of it. This was from last Wednesday, I believe it was. Both Pima County judges recently nominated by President Donald Trump to the U.S. District Court bench in Tucson received their confirmation hearings today, and both were questioned more closely by Republican senators than their Democratic colleagues. Judges Scott Rash and John Hinderaker were introduced to the committee by Arizona Senators Martha McSally and Kirsten Sinema, respectively. Each judge later took three minutes to introduce family and friends and to thank colleagues, and in parentheses, Judge Rash getting choked up with emotion. But the fun did not begin until senators had their opportunities to question the nominees. Freshman Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri opened by grilling Judge Hinderaker about his views on the Second Amendment. The back and forth went on for a couple of minutes before the nominee noted that his experience as a litigator was in the civil arena and that he has not litigated or judicially handled any Second Amendment cases. Both judges received softball questions from Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware. Judge Rash devoted much time and effort as an attorney to helping the homeless population in Tucson receive proper legal representation. And Judge Hinderaker answered a pair of questions about how his 20 years in private practice prepared him for handling judicial matters and how he approaches sentencing those convicted of crimes in his court. The hearing, for Arizona's nominees anyway, wrapped up with Senator John Kennedy, a Republican from Louisiana, throwing an odd hypothetical at Judge Rash. The three-minute discussion about how the latter would handle a case of a transgendered inmate asking for hormone treatments was hard to watch, although at least Judge Rash's emotions did not get in his way. The introductions by Senators Sinema and McSally uh, were, had each of them injecting a little bit of humor. The latter did thank the former for working with her office on the nominations. The Senate Judiciary Committee also finally released the extensive questionnaires that each nominee is required to complete before the hearing. Not many surprises came out of them. Last year, Judge Hinderaker joined the Arizona Women Lawyers Association and Judge Rash joined the Federalist Society, a conservative organization. Perhaps the one eye-opener 
is that it was Senator Sinema's office that initially recruited Judge Hinderaker for this nomination this past May or June. In fact, his answer about the process does not include any contact with Senator McSally or her office. And Judge Rash was initially vetted by then-Senator Jeff Flake and was also interviewed by the late Senator John McCain. After being approved as a potential nominee by the White House in September of last year, he has met with interim Senator John Kyle and both current Arizona senators. And that's the end of the article about the hearing. And the Senate Judiciary Committee has not yet scheduled its meeting on when they will vote on whether or not to approve the nominations of Judge Scott Rash and Judge John Hinderaker for the district court bench in Tucson. And that was published last Tuesday or Wednesday. GOP senators pushed Tucson judges in today's confirmation hearing. And that was on Arizona'sLaw.org. Well, our next article is from ArizonaMirror.com. Jeremy Duda is the reporter. The headline is Lawsuit Challenges State Regulations for Engineers. And this was reported last Thursday. Greg Mills, who owns Chandler-based Southwest Engineering Concepts, filed a lawsuit on Thursday in Maricopa County Superior Court against the Arizona Board of Technical Registration. The state board regulates a handful of industries, including various types of engineers. Mills is represented by the Institute for Justice, a libertarian free market legal advocacy organization that often opposes occupational licenses requirements. The dispute stems from a complaint filed in May by a client who was upset that Mills increased his cost estimate, which the lawsuit says was due to the customer adding new specifications. The client, who said he did not initially realize Mills was unlicensed, submitted a complaint to the board asking it to hold Mills accountable for unlicensed work and to order a full repayment of the more than $2,000 that he had paid to Southwest Engineering Concepts. At a meeting in October, the board found that Mills had illegally failed to register himself and his firm. It also concluded he had violated a law prohibiting people from practicing or offering to practice engineering without the proper licensing and registration, and by presenting himself as a licensed professional. The board found that Corporation Commission records and Mills's website show that he had promoted himself as an engineer since 2007. The board voted to impose a fine of $6,000 and asked him to sign a consent agreement agreeing to not practice engineering in violation of state law. Mills refused to sign the agreement. They want to put me out of business, and I believe that is an outrageous overreach for the state to do that, Mills said at a press conference on Thursday outside the historic Maricopa County Courthouse in downtown Phoenix. The lawsuit argues that the board's attempt to regulate and discipline Mills violates the Arizona Constitution on several fronts. It alleges that the board violated Mills's right to make a living, as well as his right to free speech, by attempting to bar him from calling himself an engineer. The suit argued that the statutory definition of engineer is unconstitutionally vague and said even the board's engineers had a difficult time determining whether Mills fell under it. One of the two engineers who evaluated the Mills case for the board said he was not qualified to determine whether the specific services Mills provided could only be performed by a licensed engineer, and he recommended further evaluation by an electrical or mechanical engineer. Both experts, however, concluded that Mills advertised himself as a professional engineer in violation of state law. 
The suit also argued that the broad latitude that the board has in interpreting that vague definition violates the separation of powers between the branches of government. State law defines engineering practice as any professional service or creative work requiring engineering education, training, and experience, and the application of special knowledge of the mathematical, physical, and engineering sciences. The Board of Technical Registration declined to comment, though Executive Director Melissa Cornelius said it will have a full and robust defense. Furthermore, Mills argued that there is no good reason why the Board of Technical Registration and the state of Arizona should require him to get a license in the first place. Unlike engineers who build bridges, roads, and buildings, Mills's work poses no threat to public safety, he said. Mills provides electrical and mechanical engineer services, including medical devices, consumer electronics, and aerospace components. He said he deals in small voltage devices akin to cell phones, watches, and pedometers. The lawsuit noted that Mills has built LED light arrays and control panels for them, sensors that help people improve their basketball shot, and systems that measure the distance and speed of thrown baseballs and footballs. He does not design, analyze, test, or build anything that requires signed and stamped plans, the lawsuit said. Mills is an engineer as the word is commonly understood, the lawsuit asserted, and he has more than 30 years' worth of experience in the field of electronic engineering, argued the Institute for Justice attorney Paul Avalar, who represents Mills. But Mills almost certainly does not qualify to apply for a license, he said. State law exempts engineers who work for manufacturers and public service corporations from the licensing requirement. Because Mills spent the bulk of his career working for such companies in Wisconsin and Arizona, he has never needed a license. Now he heads up his own company and no longer falls under that exemption. Avalar said 80% of engineers, which amounts to thousands of Arizonans, do not have licenses. The only difference between them and Greg is that Greg works for himself and they work for a big company, he said. In order to qualify for a a license to practice engineering, applicants must have at least eight years of experience in the field, up to five of which can be from their professional education. But that experience must be under the supervision of a licensed engineer, and Mills has never worked directly under someone with an engineering license. If Mills wanted to qualify for a license, Avalar said he would have to go to work for a licensed engineer and shutter his business for years while he did so. In effect, he would have to go back and go to work for someone else, probably doing a different kind of engineering than he does now, just to qualify for all of this. That does not make any sense, Avalar said. Even if Mills met the qualifications for a license, state law would bar him from applying for two years if the board finds that he is practicing engineering without a license. Mills can challenge the board's findings before an administrative law judge, but Arizona administrative law makes it difficult to prevail in such cases, and Avalar questioned the system's constitutionality. Even if an administrative law judge rules in Mills' favor, the board is allowed to simply ignore that finding. Mills could appeal in superior court, but would face a high bar in getting a judge to overturn the board's decision.
If Mills and the Institute for Justice prevail, the ramifications could extend far beyond one individual and his business. A judge could rule narrowly in their favor that the board is unconstitutionally applying the law to Mills, which would likely affect only him and perhaps others in similar situations. The lawsuit largely asks the judge to prohibit the board from enforcing regulatory laws against Mills alone. However, the lawsuit also asks the court to declare the statutory definition of engineering to be unconstitutionally vague. Avalar acknowledged that a broader ruling that strikes down the statute as a whole could eliminate the board's ability to register any kinds of engineers outside of those who willingly submitted themselves to the board's authority. The definition of engineering practice may not affect people who voluntarily submit themselves to the board by registering as engineers, but when it comes to unregistered people, that definition is the board's only jurisdictional hook over them, Avalar told the Mirror. The legislature could render the issue moot by changing the law regulating engineers to exempt people like Mills. Such regulatory reform has been a top issue for Governor Doug Ducey, who has successfully pushed legislation scrapping some occupational licensing requirements and recognizing licenses from out of state, making Arizona the first state in the nation to enact such a law. Avalar said Mills and the Institute for Justice would support a move to amend the law, but he said they cannot wait while the board attempts to put Mills out of business. And that article from reporter Jeremy Duda in the Arizona Mirror from December 5th, 2019, was headlined, Lawsuit Challenges State Regulations for Engineers. And with that, we reach the end of this installment of AZ Law. Remember to listen or download our program wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe as well, please. And since our primary purpose is to support the important services provided by SunSounds of Arizona, don't forget to go to their website and donate. SunSounds.org, or you can find the link on our website, ArizonasLaw.org. We have several plans to grow and improve this program in the next couple of months. And hey, so your comments and suggestions to make this program better are very timely right now, especially since this is a new program. You can email me at paul.wyke.azlaw at gmail.com, and Wyke is spelled W-E-I-C-H. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, thanking you also for listening to AZ Law.